So, the big question is this. How can kingdom-minded, for-purpose entrepreneurs like us, those who are committed to building big things with their life through their business, do it in a way that they don't lose their body, they don't lose their balance, those closest relationships that mean the most to them, and their being, their connection and daily walk with Christ? How can we build, expand, and create in such a way that we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? That is the question, and this podcast is centered around those who are on this journey at a high level and their tips, systems, routines, and mindsets that have enabled them to pull this off. My name is Forrest Walden, and welcome to Tribecast. Welcome to another episode of Tribecast. Excited to be with you this morning. Uh, I have as my guest, Matt Burton. He is an author, a photographer, an avid outdoorsman, and the founder and president of Norwall Capital Management. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Forrest. Excited to have you. I know you've got a diverse background. Why don't you uh, catch us up a little bit on uh, who you are, what you've done, and, and where you are now? All right. Um, well, your your intro covered a lot of it, but I'll just kind of go back in time a little bit and give you a little bit of the 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 origin, and that'll that'll kind of tell you who I am and what I'm doing. So, um, long story short is I graduated college in '89 at Sanford University and came to Atlanta uh, in '90 and started working in a construction operation. Um, did that for several years and uh, discovered kind of early on that construction, heavy highway construction, wasn't my calling, wasn't my set of gifts. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be in that organization and they were flexible enough to work with me. And I started managing money for them uh, kind of as a uh, treasury manager, an assistant to the CFO. And did that for all throughout the 90s and into the early uh, 2000s. But in 2005, um, I really came to the conclusion that I needed to leave the construction industry and go into asset management. And so that's when I started uh, Norwalk Capital Management. It was started in June of 2005, and it was started with me and uh, my, my partner at the time. Um, he was working for Merrill Lynch and we, we launched it and kind of put our name out there and said, Hey, we're, here we are. We're a registered investment advisor and we want to help you, uh, manage your, manage your assets. So with you coming from the construction industry in, in a CFO type position, I assume you started that with no personal clients or very few. Well, uh, when we launched, um, the construction corporation, with their blessing, they said, yeah, go for it. And they said, we want to be one of your charter clients. So I, I had that client. And then my partner, he was, like I said, from Merrill Lynch. So he had some relationships that he brought over. And then in addition to that, I had just a handful. And when I say handful, I mean three uh, <laughs> other other clients that I had been managing assets for on the side. Um, so and also just a little bit of background here educationally. Um, and it is important to my career is, is that in the late 90s, as I got more and more into asset management, uh, I pursued and, and got my uh, CFA charter, which is for people in the business. They know what it is. It's a chartered financial analyst. Most folks haven't heard of it, but um, it really was at that time kind of the quintessential piece of education that you needed to have if you were going to go into asset management. So I kind of had those initials after my name, which gave me a little bit of gravitas. If you just walked up and said, who is this guy in 2005? Mm -hmm. But yeah, we started off and had, I believe, less than 10 clients and about 200 million in assets under management. So kind of meager start. Okay. So take us where you are now, 15 years later. What does that journey look like? 15 years later, um, I now have 20 people who work for me. Um, the, the major changes are I've got a whole lot more people who work for me. We've got a lot more assets under management. We're over a billion, uh, probably approaching uh, 1.1 billion assets under management. And um, 
as things have changed, I spend a whole lot less time actually doing what I started off doing, which was my wheelhouse was, you know, analysis, stock selection, bond selection, portfolio management. And I spend a lot of time now managing the operation, managing people, uh, investing into the folks that work for me and clients, uh, a whole lot more time on the relational front. So those are the big, big changes. And there's one little caveat in all of that. And is that I told you I left the firm, excuse me, the, the construction operation in 2005. Um, in 2017, they came to me and said, hey, we, we want you back in terms of being active in management. And so after being away, I went back to them and joined their board and now sit on their executive operating committee and spend about a third of my time uh, working for them. And not, I'm definitely not doing anything in the field, but it's all uh, kind of upper level management type stuff mm-hmm. in terms of what's long term goals. How do we how do we accomplish what we want to do over the long term and how do we get the right people on our bus and what are some some of the macro strategies and thoughts that I can bring to the table? So that that has also kind of come full circle. Okay, yeah. So I'm hearing you know kind of the vintage Emeth journey. You start off doing the work and then started hiring, and now you're managing, leading the culture, inspiring the team. Um, obviously, you've had a lot of growth from 200 million to 1.1 billion is uh, impressive uh, assets that you're managing now. So what does your role look like today? What what are the type of things that you engage in in order to lead and, and develop your people? Um, at Norwall, my role is very much trying to make the macro decisions on direction we're going to be taking in terms of client development. If we want to add any other lines of business, which we have added uh taxes and accounting and all the ancillary things that you might find in a, uh, in a financial firm. Um, but I would say my primary role is twofold. One is to continue to maintain, establish, maintain, and continue to preach about what our culture is, you know, what Norwall is for our clients and what it is for our employees. And then number two is it is invest relationally into the people that, that work for me. Um, I still manage a few small portfolios, but the, the days are long gone where I'm actually sitting down and I'm making these humongous big market calls or um, in investment decisions. And I've taken that stuff and put this, put that to the people who work for me directly. Um, so culture and people, people development. So help help us understand a little bit about the purpose of your business, because I know it's more than just managing funds. What value are you looking to bring to the customers that engage you guys with their portfolio? Yeah. So the value proposition we want to bring to folks is it really is a concept of stewardship. Um, You know, early on in my career, I was as I got into this, I realized that this business is extremely opaque, first of all. And there are so many players in this industry. There was then and there still are now where it's very transactional and uh, folks are not necessarily fully aware of what's going on and how much they're actually paying for it. And so one of the first things I tried to do, we try to do is, is we try to be as transparent as possible. We pull back the curtain and say, here, this is what you're going to pay us. This is what we're going to do for you. And this is how we're going to report and we're going to measure ourselves, which you would think those would be simple things. But even today in our industry, it's sometimes that gets really clouded. So it's a concept of stewardship. It's a concept of being relationally engaged with our clients. We we bring in folks. We do not treat them as a number. We're not sizing you up as and trying to put you in a silo, silo one, two, or three, and then just forget about you. Um, we have a heavy, heavy emphasis on education, a heavy emphasis on getting young people in here as clients. We have no minimums, which is kind of strange in our industry. Mm-hmm. Um So we have a ton of clients who are in their 20s and 30s, and they open up an account with $5,000. They don't know anything, Um, but we make it our point 
rather than just to take that and use it to our advantage, we make it a point to educate them and to really show them basic financial truths. Uh, they're going to work to their advantage. And the last value proposition I would say is, is that we really are a farm to table investment shop. Um, lots of times when you go and if you engage someone in our industry, more often than not, you're going to end up, they're going to take your money and they're going to put it in a mutual fund or an ETF or some type of prepackaged product that they're going to tell you is this is going to basically be a catch all. Uh, we don't do that. We we come in and we build customized portfolios. We buy individual stocks. We buy individual bonds. And all the while, I think our edu- our communication is very high. And we're constantly trying to educate the client and show them exactly what we're doing. And we're trying to match their risk tolerances with their return expectations. Um, so it's high touch, high relational Um so I would, that, that to me kind of grabs it um, and that encapsulates, I guess, what I'd call my elevator pitch, although it's probably longer than your standard elevator ride. <laughs> Got it. Um, so tell me about your book. So the book is uh, a book that I wrote with my pastor um, at the time. We were going to Midway Presbyterian Church and David Hall was the pastor and he was doing a series of books on Calvin. And so... And he was, it was basically Calvin and Calvin and, and he was always matching it with something else. And so he came to me and I think this was the fourth book in the series. And he said, I want to do a book called Calvin and commerce. And he wrote on the theological side about how Calvin looked at the world and how his theology impacted his thoughts on economics and how that then spread throughout the church through his teachings and impacted business leaders and politicians in Geneva and how then that went not only from Geneva into Switzerland and had impact on all of Europe at the time. So he wrote on the theology side. I wrote on the the hard uh, factual side, the economics, and looked at the financial implications of what Calvin and his presence in the pulpit there in his church in Geneva had in the economy. Um, it's a, it's honestly, it's an obtuse book. Um, it is, uh, it was incredibly challenging. It was a great time. We had an opportunity to go to Geneva and uh, celebrate Calvin, the 500th anniversary of Calvin there. Um, but that's, that's it. I, I'd say for most folks, it's a great bedtime reading, particularly if you're suffering from insomnia. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, I imagine when you dive in, because what I get from Scripture, and obviously Calvin was an expository preacher, but that we are wired and created to work and to build and create things. Is that like, in a nutshell, his synopsis? Yeah. So the the macro synopsis is simply is this, if we, we step one step further back, and that is, is that all economic theory, how you view your personal finances and how you view macroeconomics, um, all of it flows from your theology. Even if you subscribe to the position of saying, well, I'm not a theologian. In fact, let's say you're, you claim to be an atheist or an agnostic. You have a theology and that impacts how you view money and how you view all of economics, both on the personal side and on the macro side. And so, yeah, we are created to work. Um, we were created to be generous. We were, uh, well, for instance, the rich and the poor, the Bible's very clear, and Calvin taught this. You know, they're here with us for all of time. You know, we're always going to have the rich with us. We're always going to have the poor. Um, so these type of things from theology flow through and impact the way we act and the way we think about money. And so that we just tried to dissect that going through his sermons. Well, that's a perfect setup for what we're going to talk about on the rest of the show, and that is what you do across your body and your balance, your relationships and your being connection with Christ impacts your worldview, impacts mm-hmm. how you show up, impacts how you build your business and make it a for purpose, uh, kingdom minded business. So let's start with body. I know you are an avid exerciser. would love to talk about what that looks like for you and kind of your routines and how that helps you show up and, and lead empower in business. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll confess right now, exercise is my therapist and my, uh, my medication all in one. It, it keeps me balanced. My, my wife is terrified every time I get injured and I have to stop exercising for a while because uh, she knows then more likely than not, I'm going to slip into a little bit of a slump. So um, I definitely enjoy it. I'm passionate about it. Um, currently, uh, just schedule wise, I have, I work out six days a week. One of those six is going to be an active recovery day. Um, two of those six is going to be, I'll do a, a two a day. I'll do like a cardio in the morning and then some type of resistance training in the evening. And then I have one day, which I normally try to make the Sabbath. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way to be complete uh, rest and recovery. Um, so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I don't know how deep you want to go as to what I'm doing, but. Um, yeah. Well, how long have you been keeping that up? Okay. So in 2009, I got on the scales on April Fool's Day, 2009, and weighed myself. And I said, man, this is not funny. Uh, and it just stuck out to me. I said, this is an April Fool's joke on myself. And so I committed then. I said, I'm going to have to make some serious changes. So from 2009 until now, I would say I've pretty much kept up that schedule. And in the past, I've looked back through my daily journals and my exercise records and whatnot, and consistently running about. 330 to 340 days out of the year uh, I'm exercising. Hmm. Wow. So it was just, it just flipped like that switch when you saw the number on the scale, that was the aha moment. It really was. It really was. And it impacted me dramatically. I was like, man, that's, that number has got to be false. Um, and then since then, you know, it's, I just got a lot of positive feedback from it. Um, there's a lot of good benefits from it. And, you know, it's, we are not fully flesh, but we're not fully spirit either. Mm -hmm. And there's a dichotomy, but there's also this kind of uh, complementarianism, this parallelism that says, you know, as the body goes, so the spirit goes sometimes, um, you know, even something as, as minutia as kneeling to pray, you know, how just that physical act sometimes makes our spirit kneel within us. Mm -hmm. It's the same concept here with exercise. At least that's my, that's my firm belief is, is that as, as you train the body, as you discipline it, the spirit many times will calm itself and uh, it, it impacts the, all of you. So, um, so how did that show up in work and your leadership pre-April 2009 to post? Did it change your energy, your confidence, your leadership style? Well, it. I want to say yes to all of that, but it's hard to like obje uh, objectively measure that and say, man, mm -hmm. it was incredible. You know, we had huge growth after I started exercising and things like that. It, I, I can't. But I can say one thing is, is that exercise became a fundamental part of the culture I wanted to build here at the office. So when this, all this started in 09, we, we had some extra space. We created a gym here in the office. We started buying equipment and, um, and we still got one right now. We've got, you know, we've got squat racks. We've got, the assault bike, we've got the Concept 2 rower, we've got a ton of free weights. Um, and what it did impact was team building and fellowship here in the office went through the roof. Mm -hmm. We started doing office-wide competitions. We did office-wide workouts. We even had one day where we said, we're going to sit on this rowing machine, and as an office, we're going to row all day long. And so we divided <laughs> it up, and you rowed for six minutes every hour. And you just rotated. And so we kept that thing going from uh, essentially 7, 730 in the morning till six in the evening, just because we wanted to see how many meters we could put on the rowing machine in a day. Um, and that type of stuff is phenomenal to build just a cohesion and a sense of uh, team togetherness. Um, 
It is. And essentially that's what I get to do every day through group fitness is create that type of environment. But to leverage that within the context of your team, I mean, that's amazing. And I know inquiring minds want to know how many meters did you end up with? All right, here we're going to have to pause because I, t- I started that story and I said, man, I know he's going to ask that question. <laughs> I have to look it up because yeah. I don't want to lie, but it was a lot. I will get yeah. back to you on that one. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, uh, but we, so, did. We, we ran that thing nonstop. Yeah, so, so cool that, you know, again, your stewardship over the domain of your body spilled over into your team. And you mentioned early on in the show that one of the things you do, one of your positions now as founder and president is to inspire and develop your team. And that's not always in the professional skills arena. That can be in, in a lot of different ways. So great example of how bodies impacting your leadership. Let's talk about the balance domain and marriage and kids and family life. Uh, talk to me about that. So I've been married for 30 years. I have uh, five children. Um, ages 26 through 14. Three of them are currently in college. One at Auburn, one at Furman, one at UVA. My oldest went to Davidson. He is here now working for me, which is a fantastic blessing. And then my youngest, she is a freshman in high school. Um, Got married in 1990. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the essential facts there of, of, of the marriage and and the kids. But, um, was it an aspirational goal to have, uh, one of your children end up in the business with you or did it just kind of happen? It was not an aspirational goal. Uh, it, it happened and I'm very thankful that it happened. Um, but if anything, I would say early, early on, the aspirational goal was, is I was constantly talking to them saying, you do not need to feel any sense of obligation to come into the business here. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to take inventory of yourself, your gifts, your talents, how you feel God is calling you, you know, even things like, you know, marriage and how many kids you want to have and all these other things. You need to choose your path and take this element over here and just put it off to the side. Don't put it in the algorithm that you're going to run. Hmm. So, so no pressure, pursue your own path, but one ended up there anyway. That's cool. Um, Well, tell me about, I mean, you know, 30 year marriage, five kids, three in college, you've got a lot going on, but how do you invest in those relationships to make sure that you're equipped, um, in the relationships that mean the most. So you don't, you know, at the end, at the expense of building this huge business, leave them behind. Mm-hmm. All right, let's start with the marriage first. Um, so when we were young and, and the kids were young, we homeschooled, which is a whole nother podcast in and of itself. Uh, that story, but we homeschooled for, for 10 years. And, it, it was during that period where we really had to be extremely scheduled and regiment as far as my wife and I on having date nights on even having things uh, called couch time where we would sit down and, you know, just in the midst of the chaos, carve out 10, 15, 20 minutes where we would just talk and it would just be about me and her and trying to model that in front of the kids. Um and so that that period was was unique in the sense that it's highly regulated, highly scheduled, high intentionality. Because if you didn't, I mean, you're just going to get run over. I mean, you know, you're talking about you got five kids and one's 14 and one's two and they're running all over the place. You're going to get wiped out. Um, and then as things progressed with my wife, now we're in a place where our time together is 100% morning time. Um, we're up and having coffee probably by 6 a.m. every morning. Um, and for that first hour of the morning, it is normally just her and I. And we will, I would say, a, a portion of the time we'll have a devotional period together. Sometimes we'll talk to each other and sometimes it'll just be like I'll be on one side of the table doing my devotion. She'll be on hers. And then we'll kind of wrap it up and, and then move into the day. But we, that morning period for us is has become our de facto time together. Um, and then on top of that, you know, we do try to be intentional on having uh, 
date. And I would say we're definitely on at least once every other week. Um, but it's not, it's not near as regimented as it once was. So I've, I've been very blessed that, uh, that my schedules allowed me that flexibility in the morning to, to be with her. But that's, uh, that, that's been a key for her and I just maintaining that connection, that checking in that, you know, not only how are you doing, but you know, where are you growing? And then it also gives a little bit of element as far as how do we want to handle business of the family, which that normally we touch on that throughout the week. And then we normally have a business meeting on Sunday evenings after dinner, we'll sit down and go through the whole week and try to just cast out and see, all right, this is our week. And then is there anything, is there anything further out there? Are there any big sharks approaching the boat that we need to be aware of right now and plan through those? Is that something you involve the two kids that are still home or is it just you two? Um, it's just the two of us, but this is a huge challenge. You actually just uncovered a, a massive challenge in terms of how do you start dealing with adult children? And particularly in terms of, you know, if, if we want to plan a family vacation or if we want to go off for the weekend and we've got a 14 year old, um, you know, how are we going to involve our other kids in all of this and whether it's taking them with us on a family vacation or having one of them stay home with the 14-year-old. And that that's a massive challenge, quite frankly, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, as they're getting their own lives, you just want to maintain that, that good balance and that good sense of spacing that says, hey, we want you to be a part, but at the same time, we understand and we don't want to be overbearing parents that are using uh, parental pressure into adulthood, which we think is just a a massive opportunity for some dysfunctionality. Yeah. It's interesting that, uh, how much it changes. Cause I, I imagine when they were all home and homeschool was going on, which by the way, that was homeschool before homeschool was cool. Like You're it right. is today. It was. <laughs> um, that, you know, that's we, what, we call that, we call that fringe homeschool. We were, we were on the fringe definitely back then. So definitely, um, you know, it's like hand to hand combat. I mean, I mentioned to my wife, Mindy last night, we had a late football game. And so we're coming in at 9 PM and having to clean up the kitchen and I wanted to watch the debate and, you know, it's just like, oh man, there's just no time. So you're out of that phase and now you're more into these adult kids, but it doesn't mean there's not still issues and problems and different things to make sure that you're intentional about how you plan. So that's an interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What about the the kids at home now? Um, Obviously you've seen the three uh, go to college and one graduate and Mm -hmm. how does that change how you parent the two kids who are still home? Well, just so the, with a 14 year old at home, um, it really hasn't changed much. Uh, The only thing there is, is and and with all of the kids just trying to be intentional in terms of, me making sure that that at least once a month uh, and and quite frankly it's more frequent than that with just the one at home but i'm thinking all five of them you know we want to make sure that there is a a parent child date happening at least once a month where whether it's me or my wife you know we're doing something one-on-one with the kids and many times it would be more than that uh but Quite honestly, sometimes that's that's the best we could do in terms of let's let's make sure that we're with them, that we're connecting. You know, it's it's not so much what you're doing; it's it's how you're doing it. And uh, that's number one as far as intentional actions. But then number two with them, you know, kind of my mantra is is kids are kids are strange. I mean, well, let me say this: kids are kids. You can never, you can't time a moment when all of a sudden they're going to show you their heart. Mm. And so that was always in the back of our minds in terms of, you know, you're always, your radar is always up and you're always trying to figure out when's that teachable moment going to come up next. And sometimes it catches you at the weirdest times. You know, you pick them up one day and all of a sudden, boom, they're opening up. They've just opened up a little bit. They've shown you a little bit of their soul. What's going on there? And just to pursue that. Don't pass that moment up. And, you know, I've just told Mary, my wife, many times, we always need to be on the ready for that. 
And the worst thing we can do is try to, you know, staple obedience and staple righteousness and, and you know, uh, staple good thinking and life skills onto them. Like we're trying to put fruit like an apple on an oak tree with a staple gun. It's just hmm. not going to happen. You know, you, you, you're pushing a rope, but you got to wait until they, oh, they crack that door. They open that window a little bit and then you got to be ready to jump in and change your, your schedule around completely. And so there's, there's a concrete example of how my path, particularly in being a, a business owner and in running my own firm gave me a lot of flexibility so that when those moments came up, sometimes I was like, I, you know, I got to drop what I'm doing now and I got to go, got to go spend time with this son or this daughter, you know, because now's the season, you know, this is, this is the moment that they're receptive. Well, it's a good word. And especially for me to hear, cause some of my kids are much easier to connect with and go deep with than others. Mm-hmm. My 13-year-old son is wired just like me, and I can hardly get a word out of him, and I get so frustrated. So I hear you uh, in the patience and just continuing to engage and then be ready to strike when he's receptive. And yeah. I've, seen, I've seen those brief moments, and I just have to cultivate them. In fact, I'm leaving this podcast to go have lunch with my daughter, who's a senior in high school. And man, she's about to leave the house. I got I to gotta make advantage of every opportunity mm. I have to spend time with her. Mm. Um, all right. So that's encouraging. Let's talk about being your connection with Christ. We've obviously mentioned it throughout uh, the whole show and the book and uh, what you do uh, for work. But how does your connection with Jesus, your daily walk with him, how does it impact all these other domains and, and who you are as a leader? Hmm. Um, I, I it, it impacts it in the sense that it's just not an impact. It's a, uh, everything we've talked about right here, the, you know, we've talked about the business, the body, the balance, you know, all of these are two edged swords because they're good things. They really are good things, but uh, I'd be remiss to say it, it, to anyone listening and, and almost, and, and as an act of transparency to say that, at times in my life, all of those good things have, have taken the place of the best thing. Mm-hmm. And it gets so out of balance so quickly, you know, whether it, I mean, I was just talking to my kids a couple of weeks ago about one small little thing, trying to give them an example of, there was a period where, you know, it was my goal to do 20 unbroken pull-ups. And I began to realize I'm fixating more on being <laughs> training for doing 20 unbroken pull-ups than I am fixating on anything else in my life to the detriment of my marriage, to the de- certainly to the detriment of Christ's supremacy in my life. You know, you wake up and the quiet time doesn't happen. You go downstairs and you're doing lap pull-downs, you know, to train. <laughs> um so all of these three things that we've talked about, they're good, but they're not the best. And I think this is this is where my relationship with Christ comes in, because first and foremost, you know, um, it's it's in that relationship that the priority is maintained, that that it is constantly that the spirit constantly is preaching to me that, you know, all of God's creation, all of his blessings to me, these are good things, but I need to be focused upon the relationship with God and what his calling is for me, not only in the particular, but also in the in the broad sense in terms of glorifying him and in doing good works, you know, that he has prepared before time for me to do. So that's number one. Number two would be it, it helps me to find success. Um, you know, my, my vision, my version of success might be radically different than someone else's. And it's, and I, and I feel like that we get a healthy sense of what success looks like only when we're before the throne. Um, you know, God is not concerned about my revenue growth. Well, he is, but you know, he's a whole lot more concerned about my holiness he's a whole lot more concerned about my obedience than he is about how many pull-ups I can do. Um, so it, it just helps me to, you know, all right, what's, what's success here? What's the priority? And then last thing is, is 
and this I think is key, and this is probably something that I have struggled with more than anything else in the recent past is is establishing that allegiance. Um, you know, I think that, and I can only speak for myself, so I, I will. I'll just say that for a, a long period of time, um, I would say that I was not warring with God, but I wasn't bending the knee, you know, to use the Game of Thrones reference. You know, there, I wasn't bending the knee and saying, you know, my king, my liege. Mm-hmm. Um, I was establishing my own little kingdom. Now, I would say I was in alliance with God. I wasn't doing anything to fight him. I was using a lot of the wisdom that you might pick up throughout scripture and the life skills that you gain through uh, Bible studies and fellowship with other men. But I was still advancing my agenda. And it was still uh, about me being comfortable and me fulfilling what I thought success should be. So, and just coming to realize I, I need to throw that out. That's, you know, Switzerland is not an option here. You know, I can't be neutral, um, but it needs to be a sense of uh, his kingdom, not my kingdom. And, and in that, you know, what, what does my day look like? What is my week? What is my month? What are the goals that really matter? Um, so all of these things kind of, ebb and flow and weave into uh, my this time with God, this relationship with God, this interaction hopefully permeates through all the other stuff and keeps it all in balance. So I'm sorry, that's a really long-winded answer. but No, I thought it was a great theology of life and how Christ is the foundation and not just a throw-on, add-on at the end. Um, mm-hmm. What I'd love to discuss a little bit as we kind of wind down our conversation is what what rhythms and habits do you have to maintain? I mean, essentially you're talking about abiding uh, in Christ and you mentioned starting your day with your wife in the word. Um, What other things do you have plugged in to make sure you are focused on the right things? I mean, I'm assuming church attendance, are you in a small group men's group? Like what, what, what uh, big blocks do you have in your schedule that, that keep you focused? Yeah. So the big blocks, um, and I'll touch on them real quick, and then we can go as deep as you want to on any of them. But first of all, uh, the whole concept of win the day, start the day, um, and don't don't read the news, <laughs> don't go work out, don't crack open the phone and go through your appointments. Win the day by uh, getting into God's Word. Um, and so that's that's how if if you want to talk about an ideal and and when I'm actually really rubber meeting the road, you know, on on the A game, so to speak, it's starting the day, getting into God's word and then following that up with uh, just a, a time of prayer. And then normally I'll follow that up with some type of book that not necessarily is. It doesn't even have to be written by a pastor or a theologian, but something that's just going to challenge me, get me thinking about bigger picture things. So I've, I've fed myself with scripture. I've tried to connect with God. I've, you know, I've, I've prayed and now I'm, I'm still kind of in this. Um, what am I trying to say? <laughs> Mental mode. Um, and just trying to challenge me now in whether it's uh, leadership development um, personnel development, things like that. So that's, that's one of the, that's one of the big blocks. The other big block is honoring the Sabbath. Um, I've been recently really convicted and, and I would say that in the past we have, you know, on a scale of relativeness, as far as how do people treat the Sabbath, we've always been, I would say more Sabbath oriented, than society. Um, but even within our circles, I feel like we've done a decent job, but I've really tried to take that to the nth degree in terms of put the phone down, unplug, don't look at it at all. Don't look at the internet at all. Um, don't read the news, just worship, rest, um, refuel, and then reinvest. And 
you know, setting that side, that day aside has just been fantastic Hmm. for uh, setting me up, quite frankly, for a great week. Um, Because in order to do that, in order to honor the Sabbath like you should on Sunday, it means getting your affairs in order on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's been very powerful. Um, then one, one day a month, I'm a, I'm a big introvert. I can, I'm very comfortable being alone and it's when I refuel quite frankly. So one day a month recently, my wife and I have talked about and have started practicing where I get a complete day alone and, you know, it's sometimes it'll be at the house, but other times I'm just, I'm gone. I'll, I'll go out. We've got some property that we have that's on the woods. Um, but just do something where it's just an extended period to really meditate, um, pray, write out, journal. Huge refresher, huge moment, uh, a huge time of just refueling. So then if we have the church, which, you know, COVID has created some weirdness with church. Um, For sure. Uh, so that honestly, that block is still there. And we're, I'm very thankful we're we're in a church right now that is meeting and has been meeting in person for several months. And they do a fantastic job of social distancing. Um, we're we're spread out very far apart. And, um, the protocols are great, but that is that is hugely refreshing. Before that, we were doing Zoom uh, services. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that's a, that's a big block is, is, um, you know, I've, I've plugged in just with men who are, who are like-minded right now there, I do, I'm not in a current formal small group. I've been in and out of those for the last 20 years. And I'm in a season right now where there's just not one happening. Um, but I still have maintained relationships with, with several guys who are my age who are just, you know, Every man needs needs that that handful of friends where you can just pick up where you left off and immediately go deep and hold each other accountable, challenge one another. Um, so those those would be my primary big blocks. Um, probably my newest my newest little habit that I've tried to pick up on is is really taking scripture memory with me more into particularly on the exercise thing on when you talk about body. And um, using scripture memory as opposed to just music in the background, um, but trying to take that idle time when your mind is just, your mind's just kind of back there spinning and you're in there doing push-ups or about to do a bench press. Look at your scripture memory. You know, go mm-hmm. through it, work through it, uh, recite, recite it again and again and again. So it's actually really refreshing. It's just a, a new little twist on things that I'm probably going to continue, and I'm seeing some. A great benefit already on. Well, I'm glad I had asked the follow-up question because those were some great big blocks. You definitely convicted me on the Sabbath part of the equation. So hard in this stage of life. So many of our kids' sports end up on Sunday as much as I hate it and fight it. Um, but yeah, that's that's a good, good word. Um, well, Matt, my final question for you is what would your advice be for the listener who wants to build something of value with their life and not lose their body, their marriage, their kids, or their faith in the process. Hmm. All right. Well, you, you gave me this question. You, you, you did, this was, you know, you communicated this to me earlier and I'll tell you, man, I've spent so much time thinking about this. And the first thing I'll say is, is that is our tendency is to think, and it, is that there that there's just one or two answers out there you know we all are wired in such a way that we we would love to have a three or five point seven point step or sermon or talk on how to get to where you think you you have it all so here's but i think sometimes that can be a mirage and it can be something that 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 can people fixate on that can be very frustrating. So my answer, I've got essentially two, two quick answers. One is, is going into life and, and looking at your life in front of you with, with the appropriate expectations. 
And what I mean by that is, is that particularly here in the South, but I think in Western culture, Western evangelical culture, we all suffer to some degree uh, with the thought that that if we if we check all the boxes, if we have the quiet time, if we stay faithful in our marriage, if we have kids, if we go to church, you know, that if we can do all of these things, that God's going to, he's essentially going to be faithful uh, in our mind's eye and he's going to bless us and things are going to happen and we're going to get that job promotion, you know, we're going to get the body we want. We're going to have the marriage that is the envy of everyone. Our kids are going to be great. No one's going to get suspended or expelled. Hmm. Um, you know, that we're not going to have financial problems. And that, and that if that happens to people around us that we know deep down, I think we think, well, they probably did something that they deserve it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just being honest. That's, I don't think we tend to be wired that way in the culture that we're at. And I would say, because here's part of the story I haven't, we haven't mentioned is, is, you know, my father died very young and that was hard for me. And it's not a sob story. It's just the fact that, you know, this is one thing that is part of my story that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, You asked how many kids I had. I I actually have six. I buried a son. Um, And again, these are the things that if your expectations are such that you're thinking that God's going to bless you and honor you and, and you're just going to prosper because you're checking all the boxes. Well, when the hard times come, the temptation is going to be, you're going to shake your fist and you're going to say, what are you doing? Mm. Why are you doing it? You know, you don't understand. You're either going to deny the goodness of God or you're going to grow bitter or you're just going to look internally into yourself and end up just throwing this huge backpack of guilt on you and trying to reconstruct it and say, what have I done to deserve this punishment? Mm-hmm. And I would say, change the expectations. You know, um, pe- pe- we are called for multiple purposes, but ultimately it's such that we are to glorify God and to make him known. Um, and your story might be one of hardship. It might be one in which, you know, you're not going to have the perfect body. You're, you might have a relational, uh, blow up. You might have an illness that takes you out of the game when you're 42. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there could be betrayal and all of these things are, are still, interwoven and brought in and God is writing your story right now. And he is the thought that he is still good is so hard to accept when the bad things are happening to you. But if you have the appropriate set of expectations going into it, that helps out a ton. So that's, that's number one is, is appropriate expectations. Um, And then number two is, is, um, avoid the landmines. I can't, your strengths, my, excuse me, my weaknesses might be your strengths and vice versa. You know, your situation might be totally different than mine. And, you know, there are listeners that, that might have it all together in terms of management style. And they're, you know, I'm a heavy expert. I mean, they're, I'm a big expert, they're expert, whatever. It doesn't matter. But, so I can't give anyone a prospective set of lists to say, do these things and it's going to work. But I can say you have to avoid the landmines because mm-hmm. those are the things that disqualify all of us, regardless of our calling and our strengths and, um, and, and our personality bents. And what I mean by that, um, well, there's the big ones that I think everyone is aware of, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're, that we're honoring God, but that we're honoring our family, you know, that we're not getting sucked into uh, uh, improper relationships, adultery, you know, leading divorce, you know, pornography, all the things that are big out there. But then even the smaller things that I think even again, particularly in the South, um, but in, in Western evangelical circles, you know, the small things that we just let pass. Um, terms of things like, uh, 
the Sabbath, tithing, um, how we how we treat our neighbors and being neighborly, you know, mm-hmm. um, these type of things I think uh, eventually build up, and and um, you know it's just being self aware of the fact of of what's going on in your inner world and in your inner life and where is it leading to, um, and I, you know, full transparency here, I will say that there was a period in my life where, you know, alcohol quite frankly, became something that that had just built up over time. And it became a, it became a good thing. It was a good thing that became the thing for a while. Mm-hmm. And just being aware of the fact that, wait a minute, I'm, I'm actually, I'm about ready to sideline myself if I'm not, if, if I'm being honest. And this is something I need to address and deal with. And these are things that just creep on a man, creep up on a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and before you know it, you realize I'm out of balance. So it's avoiding those landmines. Well, I appreciate you thinking and pondering on that question. I know, um, I mean, that was profound what you just shared because you're right. You can do all quote unquote, the right things and suffer. And yeah. scripture's full of examples and our response is to glorify God anyway and know that he's good and he's kind and he does work all things for our good. And this is not our home. In fact, in my personal time in the word yesterday, just really reflecting on second uh, Corinthians five and just it, talking about the momentary light afflictions. And I just stopped and like, you know what? They don't feel momentary. They don't feel <laughs> light, yeah. but God's given me a bigger perspective. They are momentary. They are light compared to the weight of glory. And so that's what I heard as you were explaining that, that, I mean, this mm. is not our home. And uh, we may not see the fruit we're striving for this side of eternity. Exactly. If we keep the proper perspective, we will. We'll win the long game. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt, I appreciate the conversation so much to glean from your journey and your wisdom, uh, even your candor and vulnerability on the things that haven't gone well. I think there's just as much to learn there. Uh, But I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a a great conversation. Well, I appreciate the, the opportunity, and I've certainly enjoyed the time with you. The feedback from Tribecast over the last two seasons has been phenomenal, and one of the most common questions has centered around my willingness or ability to deliver coaching to others. And as I've continued my personal journey on the having it all lifestyle across body, being balance, and business, I've been inspired to create a program that I couldn't find in the marketplace. It's called EX3, and it's for accomplished, kingdom-minded entrepreneurs that know they need a band of brothers to play this game with at the highest level. If that's you and you want to know more about what I'm up to, then head on over to ex3impact.com now.